Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session The Memory Illusion, featuring Julia Shaw in conversation with Tracy Spicer, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you so much for that lovely, warm welcome. It's my honour to be interviewing Dr Julia Shaw. Her book, The Memory Illusion, is absolutely fascinating. I was delighted to read in it, though, Julia, that you say you're bad with faces and names. I found that incredibly, you know, enlightening as someone who's a memory researcher. (laughs) Research is me, search. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I think part of the reason uh, it was easy for me to write a book on how terrible our memories are is because my autobiographical memory is quite terrible. Um, And uh, yeah, I I think in general in the book, it's on the one hand a warning against all the the ways in which your memories can fail, but it's also quite comforting to know that you're not alone in how, how your memory is likely to fail. That's it. It made me feel so much better. I'd like to start by doing a little bit of an exercise. Could you all please close your eyes and think about a very strong childhood memory? It can be something from when you were very young or something from when you were a, a teenager or even something when you were around about five or six years old. And I want you to picture, visualize that childhood memory. Okay, let's all open our eyes. Julia, as the expert in this field, are these childhood memories that the audience has just thought of likely to be true or false? It depends. So if the memory is from before the age of five, I would say be careful. If it's before the age of two, I'd say it can't possibly be your memory. So it might be a memory of something that actually happened, but it's likely to be something you learned from your family telling you about it, maybe from photos, or maybe something you've just imagined that could have happened. Um, now, as an expert in court, actually, two is the age that I've um, almost been sort of pushed down to um, with other experts, because sometimes you have experts on both sides, and even on issues of false memory. Um, and so the question then is, you know, what's the youngest possible memory? Uh, and I would say two. So if it's before the age of two, it must be false. Mm. And... You also write that our most uh, remembered memories or what remains the most are those that happen between the age of 10 and 30. How so? So there's uh, peaks in sort of how much we remember about our lives. And uh, this actually ties in with uh, what's also referred to as the nostalgia or rosy reminiscence bias. And so um, we saw this with uh, political campaigns, the sort of make America great again, make Britain great again campaigns, heavily drawing on our nostalgia. And uh, they work, particularly for people who are actually, there's a cutoff as well, where people over the age of 40, it works better for, because when you go back and think of your life, uh, generally humans have a peak in the amount of memories they have from this age. And the reason is that they're your first. So it's the first time you fell in love. It was your first job. It was your first, it was sort of these monumental form, identity forming pieces of your life. And it's really easy to look back. And even if you grew up in a really difficult situation, to look back and have this sort of rosy bias and go, oh, but it was a special, wonderful time and it was better then than it is now. Mm. There's also a role that arousal plays in our memory, and I'm not necessarily talking about sexual arousal. Can you please draw that link for us? Sure. So there is sometimes, I think, the misconception that um, traumatic events or 
what actually more accurately often referred to as potentially traumatic events, because there's no inherently traumatizing event, luckily, uh, even the most terrible things you can think of. So there's some research on uh, people losing limbs as adults, so having losing legs, losing arms, um, and only about a third of the people who lost limbs in tragic accidents say that they have some form of PTSD. Uh, a third of people actually say that they've grown from the experience and that they're happier now than before. Because now they know who their friends are. Now they've changed their outlook on life. And about a third have basically no consequences. Like they just live their lives. Um, so it shows a tremendous resilience of the human brain. And we need to not underestimate how good we are at coping with terrible situations. Mm. Um, and in terms of arousal, they are not, th there is such a thing as too much. So if you are in a situation that is incredibly emotional, incredibly intense, you might not remember it. And it's not that it's repressed. It's not hidden. You're never going to find it. It was never processed. If you have too much emotion in the brain, your brain is unable to process those memories because it's trying to survive. And so I think that it can lead us into problems when we might have also therapists who mean very well, who are digging in and going, no, but you have to remember it. And instead of digging it out, they might actually be creating a memory of what could have happened in the process, which can actually lead to PTSD for events that either never happened or that you didn't actually remember. You mentioned repressed before. Is there such a thing as repressed memory syndrome? Controversial, uh, right away. <laughs> um, I would argue. I mean, I would argue strongly that there's no such thing as repressed memory syndrome. We could drop the syndrome at the very least. Um, it was that was a term coined in the '90s uh, to describe something different than what we normally refer to as repressed memory. So the idea behind a repressed memory is a, this idea that your memory is hiding something really traumatizing from you, and that this has had a profound influence on your psychological well-being. Now, this is basically what Freud said. So it's a hundred-year-old psychology where it's this idea of this hidden underlying cause of everything that ails you today psychologically. Um, and there's just no evidence to suggest that that's actually the way it works. And so the problem with trauma, of course, is generally that we remember it too much, not that we don't remember it at all. Um, and there certainly isn't sort of a hidden part of your brain that only a therapist can unlock. That's not to say that we are constantly thinking about terrible things that happen. And of course, we can have triggers that bring up old memories. But I'd be incredibly cautious if you're in therapy for, let's say, anxiety or uh, anything. So something unrelated where you're not there because you think something terrible has happened to you. But if a therapist suggests something must have been terrible and then says, would you like to do regression therapy? Always say no. Unless you want a false memory of a terrible event. Freud has a lot to answer for. Well, Freud was incredibly important. I mean, he was influential in how we think about the brain, of course, but he, he actually lived, uh, so I live in London. I know I sound American. I'm not American. Uh, I'm Canadian. You can all relax. <laughs> um, but in, he actually, Freud died, so his last um, place of residence is down the street from where I live now. Um, and so there's a, and a, and a Freud museum there as well. Um, and so I sometimes picture him like walking down with me and us arguing and fighting about <laughs> His ideas. Feminism. <laughs> yeah. No, um, it's wrong. Um, I mean, obviously, with all the hindsight that comes with that. But, but yeah, I, I think anyone who identifies as um, psychoanalytic or Freudian, just be careful with assumptions around memory with these particular kinds of therapies. Mm. 
I always thought with positive memories that if I retrieved them often and enjoyed them, that would consolidate that positive memory. So I was shocked to read in your book that there's such a thing as retrieval-induced forgetting. What is that? Yeah, remembering can lead to forgetting. does not seem intuitive at all. Um, Retrieval-induced forgetting is the fact that every time you recall a memory, so a memory, let's take that back a step, a memory is a neural network in the brain, right? So it's a, a connection between neurons, between brain cells, and that that network ideally is reactivated when you're remembering or reliving what happened in the past. Um, so again, for that to happen in the first place, you need to have paid enough attention, not be stressed too little stress or not too much stress. It's sort of like it needs. It's like the Goldilocks principle for memories. Like you forget most of your life, and so for the things to be remembered, it's actually it needs to be quite a special thing quite often. Um, and so when you then reactivate that, what you're doing is you're activating this network. And for those of you who've, um, or who are familiar with research on memory, you may have heard of the hippocampus. Now, the hippocampus uh, allegedly looks like two seahorses in the brain. It doesn't. <laughs> That's how it's often described. So you can just picture two seahorses in the middle of your brain. And this part of the brain is incredibly important for memory formation. But that's not where memories live, especially not autobiographical memories. So it's important for the first processing. Um, And so when you're recalling, what you're actually doing is you're recalling, for example, if you have a visual piece, you're actually triggering a part of your brain that is responsible for images. And then you might have a piece in the network that's responsible for sound and a piece of it. So so what's called multisensory remembering, which is usually what we cherish the most, um, brings up these really complex networks. Now, retrieval and just forgetting is because you're bringing up this network, you're making it malleable. So you're, you're making it prone to change again. And so you're bringing it up. And so depending on who you're telling your story to, so the social dynamics of how we recall memory are tremendously powerful. And so maybe your story is getting a little more interesting. <laughs> the story gets better every time it's told, right? Uh, or the other quote, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. The problem is that that's an inherent, it's a natural thing to do. We don't want our listeners to be bored, and so we bring out the most interesting pieces, and maybe they start to grow over time, and we drop lots of pieces as well. And so in that process, what you're doing is you're able to forget the pieces you're not activating, hence the forgetting, and you're able to change or distort those memories over time just because you're recalling them. And so when you put it back down, it overwrites the original. So you're, you're always playing with the original. It's never, you don't get a backup. You, you can't go sort of, check what the original version was unless you've recorded it outside of your brain. It's fascinating stuff, isn't it? Please buy this book. It's riveting. Um, Who's terrified already? (laughs) And also What is real? (laughs) The favourite, my favourite theory that you write about in your book is fuzzy trace theory, the best name theory ever. Can you explain that? Um, Yeah, so fuzzy trace theory is... um, Basically, this idea that uh, we have these, well, as they're called, fuzzy traces in the brain. Um, I mean, it, here again, you need to understand, I think, two other pieces um, which help to contextualize it. It's that your your memories are stored in, well, multiple pieces, but two sort of core pieces. And when I'm talking about memories, um, the kinds of memories I'm most interested in are autobiographical emotional memories. So the memories of your lives rather than facts. Um, within autobiographical memories, there's uh, two pieces of information we store. We actually do this with facts a little bit as well. Um, But we store where we learned information and what the information is. And those are sort of separate pieces in the brain. This is why you can have situations like not remembering where you heard a story 
For the news and misinformation, this also has powerful implications because you might misattribute where you heard a piece of information from. So let's say you read a headline quickly and you go, well, normally I read the BBC or normally I read the UK references here, but the Guardian. Um, and so you say, it must have been from the Guardian. Suddenly it's maybe a much more credible source that you've attributed to this particular headline than there maybe actually was. Um, and so that's because you're mixing up these two different pieces of information. And that can happen with stories as well and your memories. And so my aunt actually, so I have this aunt called Ilza. And when you start writing about memory, so I mean, again, backing up. Um, so I'm the first in my family to go to university. And um, it took a very long time for my family to understand the core concept of what I do. Um, and by that I mean, uh, so when I said I was doing a Bachelor of Arts, my grandma kept saying, oh, when am I going to get a piece of art? I'm like, no, psychology. Uh, then I did psychology and law. And they're like, oh, so you're becoming a lawyer? Still no. Uh, and then the, the last one was, I'm becoming a doctor. And my mom kept being, I have this thing on my foot. It's like, no, <laughs> no, still no. Uh, but then when you write a book, they, they can read about it. And, and they can stop asking these uninformed questions. Um, and so suddenly they go, oh my God, this is what you do. And you hear all the stories. And you'll notice this in your life. So if you read the book, or even if you don't, um, once you know false memories are everywhere, you see them everywhere. Um, and so my aunt tells a story where she was in Basel with my mom and my dad. And um, they're sightseeing during the day. They go downstairs into a garage. And uh, Ilza gets in the back seat. My mom and dad go in the front seats. They try to drive out of this parking garage, and in front of them, there's a person talking to himself who's obviously not very well. And my mom gets out of the car and just says, sir, can you please get out of the way? And instead of moving out of the way, he runs at her, pushes her in the car, and starts to assault her. Um, now, of course, everyone's shocked. My, my dad's response is to just drive, because he then, and luckily he does, he falls out of the car. She, she goes straight through, and in the end, uh, they're okay. Um, I mean, obviously, her worldview is shaking because nothing like this has ever happened to, to my mom. And so Ilza tells a story full of emotion, full of details. Full, you can basically relive it with her. There's only one problem. She wasn't there. <laughs> so it's a real story. It's just that my mom had told it so many times that at some point, Ilza put herself in the back seat. And it, it's like, maybe it's wishful thinking, because your life isn't all that, I don't it's a family event, and maybe it's, sure, it's negative, but at least it's exciting. Um, but, but that happens all the time, is that if you hear multi-sensory stories from other people, you can pick them up. You can become, be a memory thief, and they become your lived reality. Um, and so, again, being very, well, critical, or at least skeptical of where your memories might be from, and not assuming that just because it's full, because the other thing with her, she won't let go. So we've told her, it's not even the right country. You don't live in Basel. You, you haven't been to Basel in 10 years. Um, and she goes, no, because we are our own favorite experts. And if it feels real, we don't let that go very easily. At the other end of the spectrum, are there actually people who have what we used to call photographic memories? No. <laughs> Just no. <laughs> There are people who are referred to as highly superior autobiographical memory individuals, so H-SAMs. Um, I've met one of these H-SAMs before. Uh, there's, as far as on record, there's, I actually don't know what the current standing is, but when, when I wrote the book, I think it was about 180. Uh, there's an institute in California that researches this particular uh, group of individuals, and <laughs> this is also a wonderful fact about them. 
is they constantly have people writing to them saying, oh, I'm, I'm an HSAM. We all think we're great at lots of things in life. Um, and memory is one of those things that a lot of us are really overconfident in. Um, and they get thousands of people writing to them every month. And then they do tests with most of them. And they are not highly superior autobiographical individuals. Um, but there's been about, so 108, probably about 300, I would assume now, who have been identified. So it's not that many, but, but quite a few. And these are people who often have written journals. And so what you can do is you can pick up these old journals and open them and say, okay, so on February 2nd, 1987, what did you do? Or depending on what kind of um, superior memory they have, what was the weather like? Or what did you have for breakfast? Or who did you meet? Or what did you read? Uh, what were the headlines in the news? And these individuals, depending on what their strength is, will be able to say with incredible precision what happened. So, and, and when you ask them whether they like this ability, most of them say no. So most of them are incredibly unhappy with the fact that they can remember everything because they can also remember everything equally. So the good and the bad. So most of us, luckily, our brains quite naturally sort of downplay the bad. It's not, again, it's not repression, it's not for, but, but we're, we're more likely to remember positive things in our lives and that's a really adaptive thing. Uh, never mind the fact that humans are really boring and tell the same stories all the time. So I think being in a relationship would be really difficult if you remembered everyone's story from the first time they said it. Um, but yeah, but these HSAMs, uh, they're incredible. I met, I met um, a little boy, actually he wasn't that little, he was 12, um, called Jake, who ha was a, a diagnosed HSAM. And uh, this is where it's interesting to me, is that sure, they're amazing at these particular kinds of memories. But Jake, an HSAM, who had been studied like crazy, who was part of this documentary with me, and wonderful kid. Um, there's, a, there's a scientist, or popular sort of science TV show host, called Bill Nye the Science Guy. I don't know if this is a thing here. Is this a thing here? Yeah. Or was he? Um, so Bill Nye, so Bill Nye was at this event, and he's like, I want to meet Bill Nye. And I was like, I'll, I'll take you. I, I hadn't met him. It wasn't like I knew, knew him. But I was like, oh, I'll take you. He was just too, too shy. And so I took him by the hand, and, and we walked. And he turned the wrong, like he knew where we were going, and he turned the wrong way. I was like, you have perfect memory, and you don't remember how to navigate a square? <laughs> so he'd forgotten the way. So this is the island of genius sort of aspect of it, is that you're really good at one thing, but that doesn't mean that any other aspect of your memory is, is equally gifted. This uncertainty in our memories and these, these flaws, or I guess just the way our memories are constructed, must pose a huge problem for the criminal justice system. What are the police and lawyers doing to be able to, I suppose, mitigate mistakes from people's memories? Yeah, so that was my entry point into this. Um, so my background is in criminal psychology, and I did my PhD on the fallibility of memory and eyewitness and criminal investigations. So at the intersection of false confessions and false memory research. So there's work by someone called Saul Kasson, for example, in New York, who does this false confession stuff, especially in the U.S. Um, and then uh, Elizabeth Loftus, who was one of the pioneering women in false memory research. And so it's sort of those two together. Uh, I'm like an academic intellectual baby of the two of them. Um, oh. <laughs> anyway, um, I've never said it like that before, and it's sort of weird. <laughs> I'm okay with it. Um, but they, uh, so, so what I was researching is whether through leading and suggestive interview practices, we can convince people that they committed a crime that never happened. And we, we 
we knew that people were falsely confessing based on what are called internalized false memories. We know that people go to prison through things like the Innocence Project, where they're exonerated later on. We know that in 25%, people give a confession, even though we know from later on that they're innocent. Um, and we also know that 75% of cases, um, there's a, an eyewitness involved that has misidentified someone or has played a critical role. So their memory has failed in some way. Um, and so for this false confession stuff, the question was, how do we get here? And how do we study this more effectively? And so um, in my research, I implanted false memories of committing crime in 70% of participants just through using um, imagination exercises and assumptions that, that, so they thought that I knew stuff about their lives because I'd contacted their parents ahead of time. So I'd sent a questionnaire to their parents about emotional experiences. Um, and one of the experiences I asked them about was always real to gain credibility. And one of the experiences was false. And so by over three weeks, people would picture repeatedly this event. So it was assault, assault with a weapon or theft. And in all of those cases, there was police contact. Um, and it allegedly happened between the ages of 11 and 14. Um, now, these were 20-year-olds, um, so that wasn't that long ago. Um, the idea being that their parents would have had to be called at that age if they'd engaged in a criminal activity where the police were involved. Um, but what it showed is the incredible ease with which through trust, through authority, through leading questions, through misinformation, um, you can really quite easily <clears throat> convince people that they did terrible things that never happened. Why not just a party trick um, in terms of the criminal justice system? The reason they did this study was because we need to show in a lab what are some of the factors and, and can this actually happen and how can this happen? Because it's, it's much harder for the courts to ignore research when it's so directly related. It's an actual crime. It's not sort of, oh, another classic study, for example, is a hot air balloon ride or meeting Bugs Bunny at Disneyland, which is an impossible memory. Um, but those, you take those into a courtroom and they sort of go, well, that's nice, but. Um, and as scientists, we see the direct application of that. And we go, no, no, this shows the fallibility of important emotional events. And, you know, we, we make our case, but it's much harder unless you have this sort of study you can hit them over the head with and go, no, no, this is hard to ignore. Are the police getting any better at modifying their interview techniques with witnesses to make sure it's more credible evidence? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think there's been tremendous success, actually, in, um, in, in over the last few years in getting more awareness around false memories, in um, making police aware of suggestive interview practices. Um, I mean, in Australia there is a really strong presence of forensic psychology and investigative interviewing researchers. Um, and as far as I understand, there's quite a lot of communication between police and academics, which wasn't the case when I was even an undergrad. Um, so this is a relatively new phenomenon that police actually want to listen. And I mean, even in terms of my study, uh, which was the foundation of, of the book, um, so I, I mean, it's been cited in the International Criminal Court. It's been, I, I do police training, I do military training, I do barrister training all on the issues of the fallibility of memory, because these professions rely on memories as evidence every day, and yet most never get training, even an hour, on how memory actually works. And so I think that urgently needs to change. And we're seeing a little bit of movement, but it's got a long way to go. 
And then you've got the added complexity when it comes to witness statements of what you call own race bias. Can you break that down for us? So many problems with witness <laughs> statements. Um, but own race bias, so own race bias is one particular bias, uh, which we have actually in, in life as well. Um, and there's also an own age bias. There's a, a, there's a, a couple of related biases, which basically says that it, you are more likely to recognize out of a lineup someone who is of the same ethnicity as yourself. And the reason for that is that typically we are surrounded by people who are of the ethnicity that we are, and so we're focusing on the correct things, the right sort of differentiating characteristics within our own ethnicity. And with other ethnicities, we might not have that. So for example, Caucasians rely heavily on hair, but where in, in a lot of cultures, a hair color is much more universal. And so it's a really unreliable feature to rely on. Um, in terms of eyes, so how you look at the eye-nose ratio, basically it, it's we've trained our brains repeatedly because with our own ethnicity, we have all these examples. And so we have a sort of huge plethora of sort of here's how we differentiate. And we just don't have that as much, which means given that especially in, uh, well, in lots of parts of the world, unfortunately, um, there's this huge discord between... Um, ethnicities and who's even accused of a crime in the first place, and it is disproportionately people of color, people who are not Caucasian, um, if the person who's doing the identifying is white and the person who's being identified is not white, that has massive potential to lead to misidentification. And so we need to take that into account when we're giving instructions, when we're building lineups, um, and, and just recognize that that's a huge issue. Another huge issue that I potentially see affecting the next generation and does affect us is this huge expectation to multitask these days, particularly with the double screening. And your research shows that there's no way any of us can multitask effectively. You can't multitask. <laughs> Just stop pretending. Um, it's not possible. It's not how your attention works. Um, I, I When people tell me, A, they're so busy, I hate that. <sighs> We're all busy. Uh, <laughs> so busy, okay. Um, and, and that, oh, I'm multitasking all the time. And they have, yeah, as you said, sort of multiple screens up and they've got the pings going on on their phone. And, and, and we have this weird also like pride, I think, in this sometimes. So, Look at all the things I can do at once. Um, but you can't. Like you, you, you physically can't. I mean, you can walk and talk at the same time, but that's because those are completely different systems. If we're talking about thinking... You get one at a time. So what you can do is you can go between, you can task switch potentially very quickly. And so you can go between pieces of information. But once your attention, I mean, this sort of idea also that attention is the most valuable commodity right now. I mean, the internet, everything is trying to get your attention. Um, there's a reason for that. It's because you've only got one version of it at once. And so it, you, they have all of you for that period of time. Um, and so, yeah, with multitasking, I would advise anyone who likes having lots of things open at once, um, try to do things in sections. So focus on one thing at a time, maybe for a little bit more time than you might allocate otherwise, and then switch to maybe your phone or switch to something else. And with this, we even know that just the presence of a phone. So if you're on a date, there's research on this, looking at romantic relationships and looking at phone presence. Um, if you put your phone on the table, basically, what are you doing? You're constantly thinking about your phone, and so is the other person. And so you're not giving that person your full attention, and it has a negative impact on your date. So Julia's dating advice 
<laughs> is don't put your phone on the table. <laughs> on top of that, digital amnesia is a problem as well, right? Mm. I often get asked about uh, oh, kids these days, uh, of which sometimes I feel like I'm still a part. I don't know. Um, but kids these days, uh, they don't remember anything. They can just Google things. Isn't that messing with their memories? I had a teacher spend about an hour discussing with me that his kids couldn't remember the names of capital cities in the world anymore. This is an atrocity. Um, I have, uh, I mean, there's, there's sort of two pieces to this. Um, one is almost certainly uh, digital. So, so recording things digitally. So whether it's a photo or you're tweeting something or you're making a note, as soon as you've outsourced your memory, either to your device or to something else, um, your brain goes, well, I don't need to remember that. You've outsourced it. Um, and, with, and Google does do that because it's this treasure trove of information that you know you have access to whenever you need it. And so all you're ideally remembering or potentially remembering are the keywords, where, how you can find it later. Because without the keywords, Google doesn't help you either, right? So you need to remember a little bit of information, but not all of the information. Um, there's some research where participants were asked to uh, learn facts. And in this study, um, some of the participants were told to just memorize, so just learn. Other participants were told that they could write things down on their computers. And a third group were told that they, could, they had to just sort the information into five folders. Now, those who were sorting the information were much less likely to remember the facts, but were really good at remembering where the facts were and so this is the other piece, is that we're, our brains will then potentially remember the location of the information rather than the information itself. And so I think digital processes have profound impact on how we are likely to remember and the structure of our sort of navigation for memory. Um, but I think, and this has also fraught with issues because of misinformation, because of contamination online, blah, 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 yes. But I think not having to memorize Lots and lots of information like we used to have to do. It's kind of like when we started to write things down. That was tremendously freeing. That basically allows you to go to the next level and think much more conceptually, I think. Because it frees some time, frankly. Um, and so never mind the fact that you're connected to all this information in a way that you can integrate much, much faster than you ever were before. So I think memory is changing. I think that uh, we know that taking a photo as well, you're less likely to remember it. But you have a photo. So you also more like to remember it at all. So sort of you're, you're probably going to lose some of the context, some of the nuance, but you are going to have a, a record, which is helpful because your brain's terrible at remembering things. So, it, but it, I guess it, in, as a take-home message from all of this, I would say, if something, if a piece of information is important in its verbatim state, so the accuracy matters, the exactness matters, write it down. Assume your brain is going to forget. And, and this is true for meetings, this is true for life, this is true for witnessing a crime. Um, try to get that out of your brain as quickly as possible because your brain is like prone to distortion, social influence, all this other stuff. Um, and at least a record is less likely to have that happen. Your book is full of terrific humour and wonderful advice. And one piece of advice that jumped out to me was never eat soggy wieners. Why is that important? 
Well, that was the <laughs> mnemonics. Um, so that was my way as a child of remembering the coordinates, the north, east, south, west. Never eat soggy cleaners. Yeah, no, never. I'm sure lots of you had a version of this. Um, I still have to, and this is super embarrassing, I still have to sing the alphabet song when I alphabetize things. Every time. I can get to about D, and after that, I'm like, every time. Um, and and it's, it's just because the song and these mnemonics, they can be so effective. That they that they're just there. They're sort of like hardwired <laughs> at some point. So mnemonic, uh, for those of you who are less aware of this sort of stuff, uh, a mnemonic is just a, a memory aid or a way of remembering things better. And uh, that can be sort of like like that, like never eat soggy wieners. That can be um, uh, so one way that um, individuals who become memory champions. So there's there's this whole world which I discovered um, actually when writing the book of people who do memory championships, so people who compete for how well they can remember things. And so they, how, they have to remember, for example, lots of names and faces. They need to remember uh, ridiculous amounts of numbers. Um, they need to remember sort of how cards, the order of cards. And so they have all these sort of games that they have to do, and, and they have to have a threshold where they at least remember X amount of each for each task and then they become a memory champion. Um, memory champions seem to almost universally use the exact same mnemonic technique, which is to make things as weird as possible, uh, and to make things ideally as multi-sensory as possible. So how do you remember a random sequence of numbers? Well, numbers, to most of us, don't have any inherent meaning. So what you need to do is you need to give it meaning. And so some will picture the numbers as characters, some will have them as colors, some will have them as things that you walk around. Maybe the numbers are interacting with one another. Maybe they have names. And so you can train yourself in these techniques. There's actually a really book, good book called Moonwalking with Einstein, which is written by Joshua Four, who trained himself as a journalist within one year to become a memory champion just by applying this one principle. But the reason why most of us are bad, or one of the many reasons why our memories are uh, problematic, is that we often actually don't give it that much energy. So we don't actually, A, pay enough attention. Quite, like, the reason that you can introduce yourself to someone, hear their name, and immediately forget their name is because you never actually paid attention to their name, really. You were paying attention to everything. It's first impressions. What do they look like? It's who are they? It's how do I know them? Maybe something else is happening, and, and gone. Like, you, you, you never had a chance. And so memory champions will like focus in, repeat the name, immediately try to build an association. Um, and things like, like, I mean, it can be like Steve with the weird ears. Don't say them out loud. <laughs> I mean, you can. Maybe not that one. Uh, one memory champion uses <laughs> uh, sexual positions for every person. <sighs> Doesn't say them out loud either. Uh, whatever works for you, and ideally some emotional peace, is, is, it's good for you because you're more likely to recall it later. One of your overarching messages is that forgetting is probably one of the most important things the brain can do. And I found that very comforting. Why is that? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's also part of my ethos. So I, I really like to read science fiction. I think I really live in the future. Um, I don't I maybe live a bit in the present at present and I sort of interpret it in context in relation to the history. But my personal history and the history of humanity is to some extent of interest to me only in that it helps us inter understand the future. Um, and so within that, 
I guess also personally my ethos is probably sort of live in the present because the past is mostly fiction, uh, which I think can be a very freeing thought. Mm. Um, this isn't to downplay sort of the importance of understanding history. It's just that in terms of importance to me, I think that's uh, uh, the way to go. Um, but yeah, uh, where was I going with this? <laughs> Talking about memory. What about was forgetting. Forgetting. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> forgetting. Yeah. <laughs> Not on purpose. Um <laughs> People often ask me if these moments are like totally by design. They are not. Um, the why is forgetting so important? So I, especially in the context of the criminal justice setting and the tremendous threat that false memories can pro can, can uh, present to um, rightful convictions, if you will. Um, I think uh, I often get asked, sort of, aren't false memories terrible? Aren't they a mistake? Aren't they an error? I mean, they're even called false. Like it sounds negative. Um, and my response is generally that false memories are the result of our incredibly flexible brains that can combine and recombine information in ways that didn't actually happen. Now, what that also sounds like is creativity and intelligence and problem solving is being able to take in abstraction information and link it together, create networks that we can work with and to apply them to the present to navigate. Uh, our, our circumstances. So false memories are the byproduct of this incredibly beautiful system, which is incredibly flexible. In terms of forgetting, forgetting is also a product of this. Um, so forgetting is incredibly important because it, the brain is trying, to some extent, to filter out the information that it thinks is going to be important to you and your survival. Now, it gets that wrong all the time, but it's kind of trying to do that, right? So you don't need to remember what you had for lunch yesterday for the rest of your life. It's just not important. And if you do remember it, who knows? Maybe it'll inter, you know, it'll it'll mask over or make it more difficult to find the information you actually need. So it's trying to streamline the process, and so forgetting is part of that. Um, the other thing is that it, it is just really helpful for things like trauma that forgetting is possible and is likely for most of us um, because it does help us live our lives. I'm going to open it to questions in one or two minutes, but before I do that, I'd like you all to think back to that dress that went viral on the internet a couple of years ago and it was either hashtag blue and black or hashtag white and gold who thought it was blue and black show of hands for those of you who remember it who thought it was white and gold look at that about 50 50 split why is it that our brains do that who has no idea what we're talking about <laughs> break it down julia <laughs> Um, so I have a whole chapter in the book on uh, attention, basically, and um, our unique realities. So I, in terms of your current reality, so every one of you sitting in this room will be perceiving this exact situation differently. Um, so I sometimes sort of say that it's sort of a, like you're, you create your own virtual reality, you create your own certainly context, um, and you bring with you into the situation everything you need or some of the things you might need to interpret what's happening around you. And so with things like the dress, so again, for those of you who uh, don't know what we're talking about, uh, it was, yeah, it was this picture of a dress and basically just some people saw very different colors than other people. And it was dramatically different. And there's been other examples since then where you can look at the same image and as you're sitting next to each other looking at the exact same image, see completely different things. Um, what to me, I think this helps to illustrate 
is this unique reality that each one of us lives in. And it helps to also show that the starting point for your memories is individual, is unique, and is potentially wrong uh, in terms of also its factual accuracy. So there was the dress did have actual colors. I think it was blue and black. Ah. Yeah. It had actual, I mean, it was an actual dress in the real world. Um, and apparently what people were processing was either they thought it was a gold and white dress in the dark, or they thought it was a, correctly a blue and black dress. So it was sort of what they perceived as the context of that for that picture. And so that's when your brain says, no, this is gold and black, a gold and white, because I can, it's, in, it's in the dark. It's in a shadow. Um, again, there, because you could take a you know, Photoshop tool and it could tell you what exact color you're looking at, but that doesn't mean that's what your brain is processing because it's in context. Um, but with that, yeah, I guess it's just this illustration of, of this unique perception and that from the very moment you start to even form the ability to remember something, you are remembering it differently than somebody else. And that's how we can end up at situations very easily where you have 10 witnesses to a crime who, even when asked in the first instance, separately, in sort of a best practices way, might have 10 totally different stories about what just happened. Um, they're, they're literally seeing different things. And so their memories never had a chance to be sort of an accurate, objective. I, I don't think there is such a thing as an accurate, objective representation of much of the human experience. Also explains a lot of marital arguments as well. Julia, thank you so much for your incredible thought-provoking book and conversation. The book is called The Memory Illusion. Julia will be signing it straight after this. Please thank Dr. Julia Shaw. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.